Welcome back to season four of the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. I'm Ashley Miltite. On this season, we're taking a look at the future. We're looking at how the things you do every day will be different 10, 20, 50 years from now. To answer these questions, we're going to the places where the future is already happening. Because the future is already happening somewhere. It's just a matter of knowing where to find it. On today's episode, the future of retail. This space, when we got it, was the classic 1980s drop ceiling. And we brought a lot of the dental work wood detail that you see here. And uh, we think it's a modern blend of you know, the classic architectural lines of the store. And then um, we wanted a, um, a minimal, clean presentation of products, very organized in the traditional Japanese way of order. We're in Top Drawer, a small shop in Brookline, Massachusetts. Peter Dunn, president of Top Drawer, is giving our producers a tour. Top Drawer is a kind of specialty travel store blended with a high-end stationery store. The walls are lined with leather backpacks and brightly coloured canvas satchels. Shelves hold row after row of pastel bento boxes and umbrellas. And a long table running down the middle of the space is covered with dozens of pens, notebooks, and phone accessories. So this is a friction pen. Um, friction technology is based off of temperature. So I'm writing like that. It's the kind of stool that okay, feels so like something from a different time. Walking past it, you might wonder how such a small store with such specific products survives in today's retail environment. After all, any of the products lining its shelves can now easily be purchased Pens online. Notebooks. So you can try literally every pen in every notebook to test it out. We, we but really Peter hopes that Top Draw brings more to its customers than just the products. The original crown moulding, the wooden beam sourced from old railway cars, the feeling of testing dozens of special pens and pencils in a smooth leather-bound notebook... It's all part of an experience designed to bring people into the building in a time when lots of people are opting to go online. Topdraw didn't come up with this model themselves. It's a lesson learned from their parent company. My name is Akira Ito, and I'm CEO of this company. This company is Itoya, a stationery store in Tokyo, Japan. And Akira is in town checking up on Topdraw, its American subsidiary. Top Drawer was created in 2014 to bring some of the specialty paper and travel products sold in Tokyo to American consumers. And it's important to Akira that Top Drawer carries on not only Etoya's products, but its driving mission. I think for the, the service side, it's very Japanese. You know, how we wrap the, the, the products and the, the bags and everything. And the explaining each things to the customer is more Japanese. But the, the selection of the product is, I think it's more American. Isn't it? mm-hmm. So we're not purists at all. We're classic Americans in the way we operate the brand and the company. Um, but, you know, we have this, this strict parent <laughs> from Japan. I don't think so. We're not that strict. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not strict in the traditional sense. But there are a lot of customs in Japan that we do try to honor, you know, the best we can as Americans. Customs like an emphasis on customer service, 
on sustainable, durable products that are meant to last a lifetime, on testing products before you actually buy them. These are all values Peter thinks will help bring American brick-and-mortar stores into the future. Whether they know it or not, when customers come to top draw, they're experiencing a blend of Japanese and American culture. Our travel poster that we commissioned for this store is a Japanese motif. We have this one with a traditional um, Toyota Jeep pulling an American trailer, and it's the the um, park in the background. But I think it's a great metaphor because, you know, Toyota's carrying this little American division, you know, along. Today on the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast, we're trading in that American trailer for that Japanese Jeep. We're diving deep into the future of retail and thinking about how we'll buy everything from daily staples to specialty goods. Will brick and mortar stores still be the retail norm a decade from now? Or will they crumble under the weight of the e-commerce boom? What will the main streets of today look like tomorrow? To find out, we're going to one place where both online and traditional shopping are competing for consumers' attention and thriving. We're looking at the future of retail in Tokyo. When consumers are thinking about uh, a purchasing need and they consider whether they want to make the trip to the store or, in fact, shop online, uh, certainly time, convenience, and cost are all factors. And online shopping absolutely has time and convenience on its side. This is Kimberly Greenberger, Managing Director of Retail Research at Morgan Stanley. When Kimberly looks at the retail market, she sees a clear picture. The majority of retail sales are still happening in brick-and-mortar stores, but e-commerce is on the rise. In the US, 10% of purchases are made online. That might seem small, but think about the early days of online retail. When we all started shopping online more than 20 years ago, not even a half of a percent of revenue was uh, generated online. Unlike 20 years ago, today we could buy almost everything online. We could buy clothing, electronics, groceries, even houses with a click of a button. But even if brick and mortar is still the norm? The growth rates, however, differ materially. And shopping online is growing very, very, very fast. So we wondered, with e-commerce increasing, how will brick and mortar stores keep customers walking through their doors? We wanted to see a brick-and-mortar store not just surviving, but thriving in today's digital explosion. And that's how we ended up in Tokyo. There are certainly surprises, I guess, for people who come from the North American, European context to Tokyo. And I think they're surprised at the commercialization of space here and uh, the amount of boutiques that there are and, 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 and the kind of gusto that people have when they go shopping. So I guess Asia as a whole perhaps has a, has a very different take on consumption and on, and on retail. I give you that, though. Tokyo is very special. This is Ben Bansal, an economic historian and professor at Temple University in Japan. In his work, Ben thinks a lot about the economics of different cities, from London to Kampala to Tokyo. And in Tokyo, you can feel it's a retail environment unlike anywhere else. It feels like an endless maze of shopping. 
stores 10 stories tall stacked on other 10 story stores. Little mom and pop shops tucked inside of luxury mega malls, super centers with a pharmacy, a hardware store, an office supply store, and a home goods store all rolled into one. And it's not just in one part of the city, it's everywhere. When we hit the streets of Tokyo, it quickly became clear that if the rise in e-commerce is taking down brick-and-mortar stores, that isn't happening in Tokyo. Here in Tokyo, you've got 37 million people living in the agglomeration, um, higher per capita incomes than Japanese average. That's a whole lot of consumers, of course, right? And uh, you've got at least the top three train stations in the world are all in Tokyo. There's huge foot traffic um, along those nodal points that drive any kind of commerce and retail, right? According to Ben, the success of brick-and-mortar stores in Tokyo is not only thanks to Tokyo's massive population. For a long time, Tokyo was known for its relatively even distribution of wealth across the population. That meant not only a lot of shoppers, but a lot of shoppers all with spending money. Early Tokyo retailers figured out quickly the best way to get those shoppers in their stores was to draw them in during their commute – and the city is a retail heaven designed around that pattern. In, in Tokyo, at least, uh, we can look at urban development taking place alongside some very important railway lines. Um, and many of these railway lines were actually constructed by private entrepreneurs or private companies. What they did was they employed a certain model that didn't just rely on building the rail line and making money on selling tickets, but doing a couple of, say, auxiliary things along the track, so to say, they would connect perhaps a relatively far-flung recreational spot. And what do you do with the, with the area in between? You basically decide to develop that land. More than 3.5 million people pass through Shinjuku Station every day. That's about five times the number of people who commute through New York's Grand Central daily. So today, at every major train station in Tokyo there's a mall to harness the power of all those commuters. And those malls? They're owned by the private railway companies who have intentionally designed those travel spaces as shopping spaces. And uh, usually the mall came after the train station was built, not the other way around, that we connect these places to the grid, but that, you know, they're in fact part and parcel of it. And that creates these economies of agglomeration. Uh, Other shops would obviously coalesce towards that, and uh, there is so much pedestrian traffic that it makes all the more sense to build more and more shops. Lots of shoppers and a rail system strategically designed to cater to them created the base for strong retail in Tokyo. But today, with so many stores competing for real estate, brick-and-mortar shops have to do a lot more than just appear in front of commuters to stay in business. Here's Kimberly from Morgan Stanley. If I were to design a new store experience today or a new retail experience today that would be strictly four-wall brick-and-mortar stores, uh, absolutely a piece of that enterprise, you would need a nice service offering. Um, If you're offering product for sale in a store, uh, at a restaurant, at a cafe, um, add various services. What are the things that people do on a regular basis? You could add a blow dry bar in your store. Think of reasons to generate repeatable, regular traffic to your location so that 
when you generate the traffic and you have those people moving through your store, you have the opportunity while they're there for the service and the experience, you have the opportunity to sell them goods alongside that trip. It's, you know, what we do is more like the um, Broadway show. This is Akira, the CEO of Etoya. I think we are trying to do the shows so the people will can see the actual people performing in front of you to do the best. Before there was just, you know, people go to the museum to see the things just sitting there, but it's not talking to you. When we first met Akira at the top drawer store in Massachusetts, he described Atoya as this kind of retail wonderland, a brick and mortar store with so many tricks up its sleeve, the products weren't even the main drawer. And there's a big paperclip, a big red paperclip. When we arrived at the store in Tokyo's Ginza neighborhood and stood in front of the giant paperclip that's Itoya's trademark, we were shocked that a store that started so small could have come so far. This model we made for our 100th uh, anniversary. This is our first store, which was very small. Itoya was founded in 1904, so it's 115 years ago, by my great-grandfather named Katsutaro Ito. And uh, he is the the first one to open the Western-style stationery store in Japan. So we are the oldest stationery store. What started as a one-room paper store is today a 12-story paper experience. Throughout the building, there are traces of Itoya's roots. The store is on the same street as it was back in 1904. Windows from an old Atoya building are now incorporated in the new store's facade. But there are also pieces of today's Atoya that Akira's grandfather could never have imagined. I don't think he knows how many pens here. <laughs> Nobody knows. There's so many pens. <laughs> As you ride a series of snaking escalators up all 12 stories, you'll notice that no two floors are alike. So this floor is called a schedule. This floor is called a share. And this floor is called a desk. We sell the fountain pens, ballpoint, different shape of paper clips. This is a cat, and this is the back of the cat. Rabbit, dogs. On the wall, there is many um, leather cover uh, organizers, so there's more natural... The music on each floor is different, meant to evoke a feeling that corresponds with what each floor has to offer. This is more like toy shop. Colorful things hidden in the shelves. Every floor offers some service or activity to keep customers entertained. 1,000 different papers, samples on the wall. On one floor you can buy a card, On the next, you can sit at a letter station looking out over the city and mail that letter to a friend anywhere in the world. This area we call write-on post. Write-on post That mailbox is real mailbox from the post office. So you can do everything while you have your uh, emotion to write to your friends or family. There's a feeling that there could be a new surprise, a product you didn't know you wanted, around every corner. And that's the point. When consumers are shopping, 
particularly in a physical environment, they're often stumbling upon things that are unexpected, things that can delight, things that can entertain. And that sense of wandering and of discovery in the retail store environment uh, it is very, very difficult to replicate online. This sense of discovery is something that Atoya excels at, and it's what keeps their floors full of customers. Atoya is more than a store now. It's a tourist destination. But Atoya is also the exception more than the rule. For new retailers, building a physical space, a trusted team of staff, and a loyal customer following can feel nearly impossible. And those challenges are some of the reasons why many retailers have opted to move much of their business online. And that, in turn, changes how we all shop. Consumer behavior is changing. It's, it's completely changing. And I don't like to see it as a competition between brick and mortar, because it's, it, what we're really doing is competing for the customer's time. This is Masahiro Ito, an executive director at Zozo, Japan's largest online apparel retailer. They're a kind of online mall that only sells clothing. Right from the start of the company in 2004, Zozo has been exclusively online, selling clothes from international household fashion brands to small Japanese designers, all on one website called Zozotown. The company prides itself on creating a type of online experience that can't translate to brick and mortar, but they also know that online shopping comes with some real challenges. When you walk into a store, that's what you know the, the store clerk does. They kind of they looks you over and says, oh, you know, you'd, you'd be perfect in this size. Um, as a complete online retailer, we can't do that. But actually, that mode of sizing, which seems personal, is pretty standard. Clothing is made to be sold in the retail stores of today. That's why they're small, medium, large. That's why, you know, you make a couple hundred of each size, for example. But now if you shift online, you can reinvent how clothing is made. If you can think about sizing not as three sizes fit all, but as something that can be customized, literally tailored to each person's body, you can change the way people shop online. Zozo is looking for ways to make online shopping hyper-personal, both in the experience and in the product, one thing they tried was the Zozo suit. The Zozo suit is a basically a black, body-hugging, tight outfit with white circles. And within each white circle are little black dots, making each of these circles unique. And once you wear this bodysuit, um, you can use our app to scan yourself and you get a 3D model of your body. And through that, we can suggest the perfect size to fit your body. This sounds super futuristic, right? Buying custom fit clothing without ever having to leave your bed. But the reality is the technology and consumer buy-in required to get us to that future are still a ways off. The Zozo suit came with its own challenges. And in April 2019, Zozo stopped international sales of the Zozo suit. But that original goal, finding ways to make online shopping personal, is still Zozo's target. And the Zozo suit brought them one step closer. Zozo took all those measurements from real people, anonymized them, and used them to enhance the bedrock of their business, the Zozo Town website. 
that sizing human database model is actually the largest in the world, as far as we know it. Sozo still wants to create a world in which there's literally a size for everyone. So they're focusing their energy on Zozotown's search algorithm. A lot of online retailers are working to make their websites easy to navigate. But Sozo has a leg up. You can search Zozotown by the width of your shoulders just as easily as you can search by colour or brand. But of course, the perfectly fitted pair of jeans doesn't solve the problem of how the consumer finds that pair of jeans in the first place. If you only exist in the ether, you have to spend a lot of money to get eyeballs to your website time and time and time again, unless you can develop an ecosystem that keeps that shopper coming back repeatedly without the need to spend that money on marketing. There are a lot of ways to develop that ecosystem. Some retailers do it with a subscription model, ensuring customers get a new product not just once, but say once a month. Others send email blasts to notify customers about deals and promotions. But what more companies are doing is creating online communities. A community of shared interests. So if retailers can align themselves with a passion or a lifestyle that generates a lot of interesting content and you can develop a large enough community that the community generates its content and the retailer can actually enhance the community. Zozo, for example, has created a social app called Wear. Zozo shoppers can upload a full body selfie, tag every item and share it online. And we use those looks, those pictures, to help suggest new outfits and new ways to put together outfits and new ways to, to suggest new brands. What's also interesting is through where you're able to see what you would potentially look like because each wear user um, has their height. So you can kind of look at their height, compare it to yourself, because fashion models tend to be unrealistic, um, <laughs> to put it lightly. But where is full of user-generated content? If online retailers like Zozo can replicate that in-person experience and combine it with the convenience and efficiency of the internet, online shopping could become the only shopping. But then... Is every main street, mall and small boutique destined to become a relic of the past? Akira isn't so sure that stores like Atoya will ever become obsolete. I think only the good one will survive. But I think it will never gone. Because it's, you know, I cannot picture the town or the city without any stores on the street. It will take many fun part of the living environment. And according to Kimberly at Morgan Stanley, the real question isn't whether brick and mortar or online retailers will win out, but whether retailers in general will be able to keep profits high enough to make being in the business of shopping worth it. The profitability associated with the retail business in the future uh, is likely to be less profitable than it is today. And in today, most retailers are less profitable than they were 15 years ago. When we look at Atoya and Zozo together, it's easy to only see the impact they have on each other, online drawing customers away from brick and mortar and vice versa. But what we should look at is how the strategies of both are benefiting consumers. 
As Atoya, Zozo and companies like them work harder and harder to keep customers coming, they're upping consumer expectations. It's becoming the norm for consumers to expect highly personalised, efficient, high-quality, exciting retail. And those expectations are going to be the biggest influence on the future. With rising consumer expectations comes rising expense. And it's unclear if retailers are going to be able to offset those rising expenses in any way. Rather than thriving at the opposite ends of the online versus brick-and-mortar spectrum, many of today's retailers live somewhere in the middle. They devote some of their resources to a small but solid online business and some to their in-person customer experience. No matter where their customers are shopping, everyone is getting the same products and messaging through an omni-channel. So while we don't see a world where brick-and-mortar retailers go away in in any sense of the word, and e-commerce retailers run the majority of business, we think rather brick-and-mortar retailers are likely to continue to thrive in terms of their digital efforts and their initiatives to be relevant shopping destinations with consumers. When a company has one foot in the virtual world and the other in the real world, they're able to attract consumers from just about anywhere. Someone in New York can be a loyal customer to a brand that only sells products in Tokyo. But what sets Zozo and Atoya apart from most other retailers? They've abandoned this omni-channel in order to play up their strengths. Zozo could never find real estate large enough to house their products, just as Atoya would lose that heritage and experience if a screen stood between their customers and their products. I think back in the day, you'd walk into a mall, see this cool new store, you walk in and you kind of try things on and, and then you know what the brand is about and you know what size you need to buy and then you could continue buying from them online. So that was the omni-channel <laughs> way of doing things. But nowadays, you discover a brand purely online. Again, now it's even more important that you're able to buy confidently from them. And that's where I think the technology can really make a difference. And we try to do the omni-channel in Japan as well, but the goal is more of the, the people can have the same experience of online shopping in the store rather than having the same experience of the store shopping in the website. But for a new business like Top Draw, the omni-channel is the gateway into the future of retail. Well, online is really important because it's the communication hub for any modern company today. All, kind of all roads lead to Rome in that respect. Our philosophy is a mix. Um, we are selling online. It's growing rapidly for us. But the tip of our spear, so to speak, how we're entering and trying to reach people are the stores. It might feel like the internet will soon force physical stores to shutter left and right. But when we look at top draw, we see a future where brick and mortar and online retailers can coexist. It's this type of hybrid model that will shape the future of retail, where consumers will determine the new rules of shopping and retailers of all kinds will find ways to break them. Thanks for listening to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. You can listen to previous episodes at morganstanley.com ideas. 
You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening.